This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who (laughs) trespass. You skipped a bunch. (laughs) I know, but I can't say it that fast. We usually say it slower. So much for all that Lutheran school our parents wasted their money on. (laughs) I know. I even went all the way through college at a Lutheran university. (laughs) Oh, man. For anyone who doesn't know, what I was trying to do was the Lord's Prayer. And the reason for that is because this week's killer was a very, very religious guy. And even at some points would blame his religion on his killings. And you'll find out pretty soon it wasn't his religion that killed <laughs> that killed no, these people. of course not. But I've heard a lot of like deviations of, oh, it was a strict Lutheran belief system that caused him to be like... And it's like, um... There's nothing weird about Lutherans. They're just like chill Catholics. I think he just had too much. I just think he had too much. You know, he just had a break. Yeah. It's so let's well, let's get into it. You know, John List, for most people, they probably aren't very familiar with who John List is. But this story is absolutely fascinating. So many twists and turns. And really, it went on for so much longer than it should have. But yeah, John List was born in Michigan in 1925 to his parents who were extremely strict Lutherans. Um, They were of German descent. His father was a lot older and he was really quite distant and even referred to John as the boy, like wouldn't even call him by his name. And he was an only child and his mom was kind of overbearing, honestly, like she wouldn't even let him go outside and play with other kids or get dirty because those were unforgivable sins i think was what she said yeah i'm like can you believe that like no your mom telling you that getting dirty is a sin yeah especially as like a little boy i mean little boys go straight for dirt and so to not be able to get dirty i mean honestly like no wonder he had these kind of you know issues that he had like he probably had the most boring childhood ever yep and that's probably what made him the most boring adult ever. Well, I because mean, that's yeah, been I think... generally how he's been described is like quiet and introverted and super rigid. And even John Walsh said that he wore a suit and tie to mow the lawn. Like what? a Yeah, weirdo. I remember hearing about that, too. And and he was really into his suits as well, if I remember. And so his uh, yeah. but his upbringing with his parents wasn't any better. No. And. From what we know, he was never able to express his feelings about anything either. He had to hold it all in, and so that's why well, he grew that up makes to be sense so for being he, German Midwestern Lutheran. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, no wonder. Just keep it all right here. I don't think for that time period that was different at all. I think most men no. in that time, you know, feelings were not something they they expressed. No, but I think his was extreme. Yeah, I definitely do too. Yeah. So obviously he didn't have the most social upbringing with the most social childhood. So after high school, he enlisted in the army in 1943 and he served in World War II. And after he went back to Michigan and he got his bachelor's in business administration and his master's in accounting. And so even the most boring degrees. (laughs) So, (laughs) but what I was going to say was when he was in the army, they kind of realized he was good with numbers because he didn't really go to combat from what I heard. And they kind of realized, hey, this is a good spot for him to be good with numbers. And honestly, if you're going to have, you know, 
an oddity and some accounting would be a pretty good thing to just happen to be good at. Yeah. And I have heard that he did see a little bit of combat during the end of World War Two. But oh, then really? in 19. Yeah. But then oh, in I, 1950, oh. the war in Korea was super revving up and the army recalled him. And from the reports that I've seen, he didn't see any action during the Korean War because the army ended up transferring him to the financial corps because, like you said, they figured out he was a whiz with numbers. Right. So he went and ended up at Fort Eustis in Virginia, and that's where he met Helen Taylor, who at the time was a 27-year-old widow. Um, her husband had been killed in Korea in action, and she had uh, was it eight- or nine-year-old daughter at the time yeah named brenda yeah and on on december 1st 1951 he and helen got married but it was super fast less than like eight months after her husband had died and she told him that she was pregnant so you know he being a good yeah. christian midwestern boy he married her and then after they were married she said oh i you know i lost it so we don't know for sure if she lost it but the way things point yeah, when we talk about later about some of her health issues, like it's possible that she did lose the baby if she Absolutely. was pregnant. But it's also possible that she kind of tricked him a little bit into getting married. So we don't know which way. But either way, that had to be super soon after they met because her husband was only dead for eight months. They didn't know each other for very long before they got married. And that's when the army transferred him to the financial corps and they moved to Northern California. And then after his service was over, they moved back to his home state of Michigan with him, Helen, and then his stepdaughter, Brenda. And when they moved back to Michigan, that's kind of when their life really kind of started going together because that's when they had their first, maybe not fake baby, Patricia, yeah. who was born in January of 1955. They had their first son together, John Frederick, who was born in October of 1956, and then Frederick Michael, who was born in August of 58. They got, really got creative with using Frederick in a first name for one and a middle name for the other. I think it was named after his dad. Mm. I think his dad's name was John Frederick. A lot of people call their oldest son John Jr., but he wasn't a junior because John List's name was John Emil List and his oldest son was John Frederick List. Okay. So that makes sense. Either way. But for ease, a lot of people call him John Jr. Sure. But so they had three kids in three years. That's yeah, pretty fast. Maybe. So it makes you really wonder if those medical conditions we talked about were any issue because obviously she was able to have three more children afterwards. So, so right. maybe she did make it up after all. Yeah, maybe. But in 1960, Brenda, the stepdaughter that Helen had with her first husband when they had gotten married, she was now an adult and she got married and moved out of the family home and stayed in Michigan. And around this time is when the rest of the family moved to Rochester, New York. John took a job as a vice president and comptroller of the First National Bank of New Jersey in 1965. And that's when they moved to Westfield, New Jersey. They purchased a 19-room Victorian mansion that they could not afford. Well, that's absolutely crazy. I mean, obviously, he was very, very good with numbers to get a position like that. You know, he must yeah. have really put in some some time, you know, to get up to those ranks. And, and he must have really been making some serious money. You know, he but, was at this time. Yeah. You know, so he was finally like, it sounds like he was finally in his stride. A 19 room Victorian mansion. That's that seems a bit over the top for 
for John List. But well, and that's what ends up becoming the problem is that he is good with numbers and he is a good accountant and he's good at his job, but he's not good with people like we had talked about before. So he gets these great jobs, but he doesn't keep them because right. he's not good with people and he's a real smart guy, but he can't figure it out socially. Yeah, and, and I mean that's that's true for a lot of people who are really good with numbers are you know struggle socially but people typically who are good socially struggle with numbers you know right. so you know it is yeah. hard to have that balance for somebody not that it can't be done because it absolutely can be but it, it is more or it is less likely to find somebody who has both than one or the other i guess this is where we start to see that john does anything he can to make helen happy and she fell in love with this mansion it was an older home that needed a lot of work And when we say he bought her this mansion, he really didn't because they couldn't afford it. So he had to borrow the down payment from his mother, Alma, who was a widow at this time and living alone. So she gave them the down payment for the house. But part of the deal was that she moved into the apartment on the third floor of the mansion. Was that part of the deal or was John saying, hey, if I buy this, you can move in? Or was it more her saying, if you if I give you this money then I have to move in. I'm not sure. I'm sure it was probably a combination of both. I kind of think so too. Yeah. But either way, Helen was not happy. That was a super hard conversation to have with her because Helen and Alma did not get along. Well, right. Everything we've heard, Alma was very overprotective and overbearing on John well into his adulthood. And really tried to lay down the law with him and tell him how things could or couldn't be. I've even read when he was in college, uh, she would come and visit him once a month and they would go out to to church, have lunch and, you know, visit for the weekend. But once a week, every month when you're in college, seems like an awful lot. Yeah. So that was a difficult conversation to have with Helen and I'm sure it didn't go well. And this house was incredible. It was built in 1885 it was named Breeze Knoll, which is a real dumb name. Should have been a, Breezy Knoll. Wh- wh- yeah, why was their house named Breeze Knoll? I don't know. The person who built it in 1885 named it. That happens a lot in, like, big mansions. Like, they have names. Like the Spreckles Mansion. Do you have a name for your house? No. I don't live oh. in a mansion. Well, I mean, it's still pretty nice. Yeah, but I don't live in a mansion. So, I mean, I guess we could come up with a name. Yeah, I think we should. If anybody has any names for Erica's house, go from crime from crime to crime and then leave a comment about uh, what Erica's house should be named. It doesn't matter if you don't know what it looks like. Just give it a name. I think your house would be more likely to have a name. Oh, we call it Libby Park. Oh, OK. That makes yeah, that sense. Was the, that was the original owners of the house. And so, yeah, we call it Libby Park. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So by the time the list moved into this mansion, it needed repairs. It was almost 100 years old and... Like any old house, it needed stuff done. It needed a paint job and different things. And John realized pretty quickly that he not only couldn't really afford this house, he really couldn't afford the maintenance of a house this size or this age. Oh, yeah. There's a lot that goes into houses, a lot more than just lights and electricity and Especially things. old houses. Absolutely. Especially a house built, you know, in 1885. So the lists were devout members of the local Lutheran church, and the kids were super involved in church. And John even taught Sunday school. And we kind of touched on this in the beginning, that he was really, really into church. Yeah, very much so. I mean, over the next few years, John really struggled financially and and personally, too. 
because by this time he and Helen were having a lot of issues because Helen was really struggling with some major alcohol addiction. Then later when she was starting to have some mental health issues, she was prescribed tranquilizers. Have you ever heard of anybody being prescribed tranquilizers? Oh yeah. Really? I mean, I've heard of sedatives and things like that, but not tranquilizers. Well, this was the seventies dude. Quaaludes were a, a big deal. Ooh, Cosby. Yeah, well, that's that's what they used to do with people with mental health issues. They give them uppers in the morning and downers at night and say, have a good day. And then they would just not have a good day. See, lawless land all throughout the 70s. Yeah, it was kind of a mess with mental well, health Yeah, issues. it was kind of a mess. And, you know, as her health and mental state declined, she started becoming more of a recluse. And with that, she stopped going to church, which was a big deal for John. But also, John was having to do everything, not just for her, but for the kids now, too. And... At first, he seemed to handle that pretty okay. Yeah. It did seem like he was a good dad in the way that he took care of his kids. I don't. I doubt he was, like, overly loving or affectionate because he did, wasn't raised that way. Yeah, I bet so, too. I haven't, I've never heard anything about that, though. Me neither. But from what everybody could see from the outside, he was a good father. Like, he did everything for the kids. I mean, up until this point, it definitely seems like it seems like he's trying, he's attentive and, and helping them get what they need. And Yeah, I've even heard interviews with the stepdaughter, Brenda, uh-huh. and she calls him dad. Really? Hmm. Even still. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So seemed like he was a good dad. But by 1971, he had lost another job and he was struggling to find a new one. And he would get the kids up, make them breakfast, take them to school and then pretend to go to work. So but he crazy. was just sitting in the park or the train station all day reading the newspaper. That's so crazy. Because he couldn't find a job. I know. That's I mean, that must have been right when he started to have his his breakdowns is, you know, He's super successful normally, but he just can't save his job to save his life. And he has so much more mounting on him. He's got this huge house. He's got a wife who's, you know, going downhill pretty quick. He's got kids that, you know, he's responsible for. This guy has a lot on his plate, obviously. And he's obviously not able to handle it very well for very long. Plus his elderly mother living with them. That's a good point, too. You know, it's somebody else who is probably relying on him a whole lot. Yeah. Well, this is about the time where he started to steal money from her yeah. because he was her accountant and her power of, of attorney. And that was kind of the thing when she moved in with them was she gave them the money for the down payment and he kind of took care of everything for her. She moved in with them and he paid her bills and did everything for her. So he started stealing money from her from her personal savings account without telling her just to stay afloat every month just to pay the mortgage on this big mansion and keep the lights on and keep food on the table right and he kept that charade up for a long time by just taking money out of his mom's account and you know just kind of putting money in different places to make it work for for quite a while i've heard anything from about a hundred grand to about 200 grand i don't know how long that would take to go through that it i guess it would just depend on what your bills are right and especially in 1971 how long you know you'd think 200 grand would last you pretty long a long time, yeah. Yeah, it would last you a long long time today, so... Yeah. So, like you said, this is when he started obsessing over not being able to keep this straight up, not being able to provide for his family, not being able to protect his children from going down a sinful path, because since Helen had quit going to church, he assumed that the kids would slowly start 
turning to the dark side also because their mom wasn't going to church anymore. Absolutely. And it was even because Patricia, who told him like, oh, yeah, I want to be an actress. And she had even gotten into theater. He thought it was a sin and he worried that she was going to hell because, you know, being an actress was a sinful, sinful profession. Yeah. He describes it as immoral. Immoral. There we go. I was trying to think of the word. Yeah. Yeah. That is what he said. Perfect. Which is kind of like, well, that's a little, you know, that's a little Yeah, stretch. absolutely. But that's that's what he thought. He thought that everything his kids did, because it was the 70s and they were teenagers, that they were just going down this horrible path. And from everything that we've read about all three of their children, they were really good kids. They were super involved in church, super good at school. None of them were horrible people at all. Yeah, or really showed any signs of even going away from the church, which is ultimately what he was worried about but there was really no sign of that from what i looked at right no me too and his wife not going to church anymore it's like well she's ill i mean obviously ill right absolutely and it was around that time that they found out that she had tertiary syphilis which is syphilis but an advanced stage and incurable honestly and that was what was causing her central nervous system to just shut down and It was starting to literally attack her brain tissue. Right. And it was so far advanced, they say that she contracted it from her first husband. Which, if you think about that, at this point in 1971, that was over 20 years before that he had died. Right. That, I mean... So... This went untreated for a very long time, if she did get it from her first husband. And by the time they figured it out, it was too late to do anything about. Right. So... In November of 1971, this is where it all kind of comes to a head. And he realized that he had enough money for like two more weeks of this charade that he had going on. And he was getting pretty desperate. Sitting at the train station all day, he came up with a plan. And he says that he contemplated suicide, but decided that was an unforgivable sin. (laughs) And that if he committed suicide, he would never make it into heaven. Uh, Which is great. Pretty ironic as we keep going. It is pretty ironic. Yeah. He was obsessed with the whole good versus evil thing and thought that everybody in his family was still a Christian at this point because his kids were still going to church and Helen was not going to church because she was ill. Right. And he decided that if he killed them all, that they would go to heaven. And if he waited any longer, he couldn't be sure that they would make it to heaven because of the path they were going on. So he couldn't kill himself because that would be an unforgivable <laughs> sin, but he could right? kill his entire family voiding. What is that? The third commandment thou shalt not kill. Um, all right. I don't think uh, yeah. good old John list here is really paying attention to what's going on at church. And I think he's just looking for a way out of a really, I mean, probably very hard situation, but took the coward's way out. Exactly. You know, they talk about the Lutheran church and being so strict and all this stuff. And it's like, first of all, we were both raised Lutheran. Well, I was raised Lutheran. You went to Lutheran school your whole life. Right. And I don't remember anywhere in any of the church services that we've been to in our entire lives where they said it was totally a-okay to kill your whole family but if you commit suicide you're going to hell like i don't remember that sermon yeah uh i've gone to a lot of church services and that was never talked about yeah so that's all bullshit that he uses religion as his reason for killing his family he's a psycho he was in over his head he couldn't afford his wife and his kids anymore and instead of being an asshole and leaving or telling his wife, we can't afford this house, and moving, he just decided to do what he did. So, and what he did was, after all of these days of pretending to be at work, 
time came for him to plan this whole thing out. And the morning of November 9th in 1971, John put on a suit, went downstairs, and he made his kids breakfast, like totally normal stuff, like he always did. He sat with them while they ate, and he got them all off to school. But after they all went off to school, he went to the garage and he loaded two handguns. His dad's 9mm and a 22 revolver that he brought back from World War II headed back into the house to where Helen was still sitting at the coffee table drinking her coffee and shot her in the back of the head. And when you hear interviews with him when he explains how he did this, he says, I walked in the house, I said a few words to Helen, and then I walked out of the room and then came up behind her and shot her in the head. It's like, what? Matter of fact. just Yeah, just cold as ice. Yep. But he wasn't done. Nope. Because on the third floor of his house was where his 84-year-old mother Alma was living. And... He walked up to where she was and she said, hey, you know, what was that noise? And he was just like, oh, I don't know. And he waited for her to turn around. When she did, shot her in the back of the head, too. His mother. Yeah. That's the craziest thing in this story to me is like everybody who's been married or even been in a relationship, you can kind of understand killing your spouse. (laughs) I'm not saying it's okay, but you can you get it. You're like, oh, I get it. Especially from a lot of the reports we've heard about Helen. She was not the easiest woman to live with. So it's like, but your mom? Yeah. What was his his reasoning for his mom? Because obviously we know that he was afraid of the kids having some kind of unreligious life. And Helen, same thing because she wasn't going to church anymore. But what was the mom? What was the motive for killing his mom? What I've heard is that he had this plan of what he was going to do. And once he carried it all out, he didn't want his mom to have to deal with the aftermath of it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Now that you mentioned that, I remember that. That would be devastating to find out that your son that you're obsessed with for how old is he at this point? 46 years. Yeah. Turns out to murder, you know, it's, it's bad. So I get what he's saying there, but that doesn't excuse why he killed her. But I also think part of that was that he stole all her money. Her money was gone. Right. Exactly. That was part of it, too. Yeah, he stole all of her money. So if he didn't kill his mom, what was she going to do? He stole her savings and her... She had nothing. She had nothing left. I mean... Yeah. But he he even left her upstairs because he said that she was too heavy to carry downstairs. Yeah, it's like, what a little bitch. You can kill people, but you can't carry a body down the stairs. She was an 84-year-old woman. Right. And he was a full-grown man. I would assume that he would be able to do that, but I mean... I guess, I don't, there's so much wrong with this. I did hear, though, that he did do one decent thing and put a cloth over her face. Like, wow, thanks for that. I know, and when you see him in interviews and he says that, he acts like, well, at least I put a cloth over her face. It's like, (laughs) did you skip over the part where you shot her in the head? Because that negates anything you've done after this, idiot. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you you are the reason she needed a blanket over her face. Yeah. So... After he kills his mother and leaves her in the third floor apartment in the hallway, he goes back downstairs and he cleans up from Helen's murder. And he says that he didn't expect it to be so messy. It's like you shot her in the head. What did? Yeah. What did you expect? Have you never seen a movie? (laughs) You idiot. This guy is like dense. Uh, at this point, at this point, he's checked out. He's not, he's not part of society anymore. At this point, he's the way he's taken down his own family. He is not with the program anymore at all. No, he is not with the program. So he said that he cleaned up because he didn't want his kids to be startled when they got home from school. So he cleaned up and he dragged Helen's body. 
from the kitchen into a room that the family called the ballroom, which was this grand, empty, 37-foot-long room with a stained-glass skylight. It sounds gorgeous, actually. It does. Yeah, it sounds really pretty. And he put her body on a sleeping bag in the ballroom and then cleaned up, and he sat down and he wrote a note to each one of his kids' schools explaining that they were going to be out of town because there was a sick family member or something, so that their absences would be excused and nobody would notice where they were. The premeditation that went into this is just so disturbing and so what seems like he's so calm about the whole thing because he knows his kids are gone. He has time to, you know, yeah. he's killed his wife, he's killed his mom. He has time now to do the the logistical side of things like right. because he has to keep everything in order. Yeah, and he had months to plan all these things while he was sitting at the train station all day pretending to be at work. It's like, why don't yeah, you just go I've, get a job? Well, I think because he had certain expectations of the type of job he needed to have, and he obviously was not able to get that because those jobs are few right. and far between as is, but especially when you have a personality like John List. Right. So after he wrote the letters to his kid's school to explain their absences, he got in the car and he drove to the bank and he withdrew what was left in his mother's bank account, which was only a little over $2,000. So he drained her. I never thought about this, but I wonder what he wore to the bank. Did he change out of one suit? Because it obviously would have been bloodied from blood splatter and yes. change back into a different suit, like a cartoon character. Yes. <laughs> or, yes. you know, I wonder what he's wearing at this point now, because he was very meticulous and loved wearing suits. From what I've heard, he went through four suits this day. Oh, every day? No, no, this day. Oh, this day. This day. Okay. Yes. He went through three or four suits this day. And Crazy. that's when he was explaining that he didn't realize how messy it was going to be. Oh, my gosh. He did go through a couple of suits. So I'm assuming he changed clothes, went to the bank. What's well, one? Yep. He, well, that's two because he started with one, then put the second one on. Okay. So that's the second suit of the day. I assume he didn't get any blood on himself shooting Helen in the back of the head, even though he was... You know, pretty close. So then after the bank and he cleans out his mom's bank account, he goes to the post office and mails the letters to his kid's school. And then he stops mail delivery to their house. And he also stopped the deliveries from the dairy service, you know, like a milkman. Right. Telling the milkman that they were going to be out of town for a while and that he would let them know when they came back. I mean, again, how calculated this is. He's explaining the same thing of what's going to happen to everybody. So everybody has the same story. So if people do start talking, oh, well, I heard they were going out of town. Oh, I heard they were going out of town. You know, it just right. all starts that, that train of he told so many people the same lie. Gave him plenty of time to, to do what he needed to do. He also thought of everything. I mean. Everything. To think of stopping the milk service. When you're planning this, he thought to tell the milkman they wouldn't be there so that he wouldn't be asking questions. He thought about his kid's school, the mail. Yeah, everything. If newspapers or mail were piling up on the front porch, maybe the neighbors would notice and get suspicious. So he really thought of everything. Yeah, and that's why he was able to get away with this for as long as he did because there was so much of a time gap. Yeah, this is the part that kind of creeps me out. I mean, the whole thing creeps me out, but this part's really weird. He went home and he made himself a sandwich and sat at the kitchen table and ate lunch like normal 
and waited for his kids to come home from school. The same table he had just shot his wife at. Yeah, how can you eat? Oh, of course. You know, but again, that's the same table you just shot your wife at and you have no problem even returning to the scene of the crime and enjoying a meal there. Like it's no, it doesn't yeah. phase him in the slightest. You know. That's why when people it, are like, "Oh, he was crazy religious and all this." Stuff. It's like, "No, this guy was a nut." No, he, he was, was just a crazy. psycho. He was just crazy yeah. as it is, but so Patricia, who at this time is 16 years old, she was the first to come home because she wasn't feeling very well. So she actually called and said, hey, can I come home early? I'm not feeling well. And he said, sure, come on in or come on home. And when yeah, she walked in the kitchen. Yeah, because that solved his problem of all three of his kids coming home at the same time. Exactly. That staggered times really just yep. made this so much easier for him. So, yep. so Patricia walked into the kitchen and John List shot her from behind at point blank range and put her on a sleeping bag and then drug her body into the ballroom that he had already had Helen, his wife, and her mom, and laid Patricia's body next to Helen's. Yep. So the baby, 13-year-old Frederick, was the next to come home. And they say he walked in the door and John snuck up behind him and shot him in the head too. And he put him on a sleeping bag and drug him into the ballroom and laid him next to his sister and his mom. Oh, my gosh. Like, just, the, this is so bad. Yeah. So, after he laid his youngest son, Frederick, next to his sister and his mom in the ballroom, he cleaned up the kitchen from this whole thing. And I'm assuming this is where he changed into his third suit of the day. Yep, suit number three. Yeah. There's a couple parts of this story that really creep me out. And... This next part is really probably for me the first of those two, and it's that he didn't wait for his his oldest son to come home. He actually changed his suit, like we talked about, and went to school and watched his son's soccer game, and then got him in the car and drove him home. So then, when they walked in through the kitchen door, John shot him in the head too. But from what it's from what we know, it seems like John Jr. put up a fight and didn't die quickly because he was shot 10 times and i've heard too that there was a misfire so there's a chance that there was a struggle before you know and that's why it took 10 shots to make sure that he was actually dead but the same thing right. happened he put him on a sleeping bag and he drug him into the same area within the ballroom next to the rest of the family lined them all up yeah john list in his interviews hasn't said that john the son struggled he said that it may have been like muscle spasms or something like that that made him shoot him more times that he didn't just go down like the other ones. I mean, it was probably something, some sort of relief because that was the last, like this was the last one and just probably emptied his rounds. Like, you know, just further taking him down this disgusting rabbit hole. And this son was 15 years old. He was probably almost as tall as his dad, and yeah. he probably could have taken him. Like, if he didn't go down right away and John List didn't have two guns, this kid probably could have taken him. He seems yeah. like a little bitch. He couldn't even carry his mom <laughs> downstairs. Do we know how big John List was? No, I don't know. He's a skinny little twerp, but I don't yeah, know how he looks tall skinny, or yeah. anything. Yeah. Like you said, in interviews, he does say that he felt relief after it was all over with. Like, he had this plan. He had this whole thing 
mapped out and then he it was just like a weight off of his shoulders once it was all done it's like it was like a checklist for the day and he went okay helen check mom check you know just all the way down like okay all five of them are done like his day was done at that point you know he had probably had nothing else planned i would hope not anyway yeah he actually wrote a five-page confession letter to his pastor and i've heard that he wrote letters to helen's sister and his mother's sister and helen's mother just explaining what happened and why he did it yeah literally the letters explain his reasonings for why he killed his family and we're not going to read the five-page letter to his pastor because it's long and drawn out and it's total bullshit and hypocritical and a nightmare he did apologize to his pastor for having to answer questions about this though so like it's just so weird who he's willing to make time for and make a accommodations for and apologize to things for but his family i mean he really did convince himself that he was saving them by doing this but really he was saving his own ass yeah he was relieving himself like he said of the burden of having to take care of his family it's crazy but he did in his letters he signed every letter with my deepest sympathies or something like that like you don't have feelings no you can't You can't. After what he just did, there's no way he has normal, everyday people feelings to be able to kill your family in cold blood like that and then sit down, have a neat, have a meal and write some letters and then take, go to sleep. Like, come on. This guy has no feelings about what's happened. Right. So at this point, he's killed his mom, his wife, all three of his kids. He's wrote a five page confession letter to his pastor. It's been reported that he ripped his face out of every family photo in the house so that when they were looking for him they wouldn't be able to find they wouldn't have a current photo of him to be able to find him absolutely in the lawless land of 1971 if you didn't have a current photo at home i guess you didn't have one because you know there wasn't facebook or instagram to to pull from or anything (laughs) like that there was no digital backups so yeah. He really did think of everything. I know. Like, just to think about going through your family albums and the photos on the walls and taking your picture out of them, I would have never thought, I wouldn't have never thought to do that. That's yeah. crazy. How could you? I mean, that's just so, but that is so detailed and meticulous. And that's yeah. what he was. He was very detailed and meticulous. Yep. Which is why he was great with numbers, but not with people. Because people you can't be rigid and meticulous with. They don't like that. Right. They hate it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when he woke up the next morning, he turned on every light in the house and he turned the thermostat down to 50 degrees and he put classical religious radio on, like on a stereo. With that, I've also heard that they were like funeral hymns. And I don't know if that's an exaggeration or not, but that kind of is the vibe. Well, have you heard classical religious music? They sound like funeral hymns. Well, then there you go. Yeah. Even his music is boring. It's like, come on, John. Well, this whole thing just gets weirder and weirder. Like, putting that kind of music on after you did what you did is is really weird. And supposedly there was an intercom in this mansion on the first floor. And what I've heard is that he put the music near the intercom so it was, like, piping throughout the house. Wow. Weird. Like a cathedral so he, like, almost. created like... his own surround sound. Well, yeah, but he, he created his own surround sound cathedral it was still even in this awful thing that he just did he still kind of made it that gothic religious yeah 
It's really kind of ugh. feeling. It's really gross. Very. After he did all that, he kneeled down next to his family and said a prayer over them. And he got in the car and he drove to JFK and he parked his car at JFK and he was in the wind. And that's, again, part of how he thought of everything because he parked his car at JFK because people park their cars at airports for weeks sometimes and just leave them and no one thinks anything about it. So, again, he gave himself more time between the murdering and to get to his next stop. And it was quite a while before they were even looking for him because he planned this so meticulously. You know, the kid's school wasn't looking for him. Nobody noticed they were gone. So in the meantime, he took a train to Denver. He changed his name to Robert P. Clark. And this is when he just became part of the lawless land of the (laughs) 1970s. And he changed his name and his identity and he just became a completely different person. And to me, that's the second part of this episode that just absolutely blows my mind is he was able to do that. Then you could never do that now. Well, maybe you could, but it would take a lot more effort than just simply leaving town and telling everyone, Hey, my name's this now. And he had no problems. He was able to rent a motel room without any identification or anything else. And he even got a job in a restaurant as a cook. And of course, because you know, he's still John list. Robert Clark was also very religious. And so he did eventually end up joining a new church. And that's where he met a woman at a church, you know, a little Swallers day, a little shindig. (laughs) And he ended up remarrying. Yeah. So in the meantime, John's in Denver starting a whole new life, working as a cook in a restaurant, going to church shindigs. People in Westfield, New Jersey start to notice like, hey, they've been gone a long time. And Patricia's drama teacher was one of the people that was very concerned because he was like, there's no way she would have just left town like that and never contacted us again. And he was really concerned. Right. And they tried to do welfare checks. And when the cops would go to the mansion, they'd be like, well, nothing looks out of place, you know. But neighbors started noticing these lights burning out one by one. They could hear the funeral music that never stopped. I think it was 29 days before, you know, they actually went in because they, the police walked around they found an open window and were able to open it up and go inside that way. And that's when they found what they found. But wouldn't you think 24 seven music blaring out of this house lights on 24 seven again? Like that's not just, Oh, these people went on vacation and forgot to do those things. It was a huge house on a big lot. So maybe you couldn't hear the music until you got up to the house. That's a good point. Maybe the neighbors weren't very close. That's a known fact was that the List family was not friendly with their neighbors. So it took a long time for anybody to realize anything was really wrong. And it was mostly Patricia's drama teacher. And like I said, he had gone to the house and he wanted the cops to show up. And he was real loud and banging stuff around and saying he was going to break in so that a neighbor would call the cops. And they did. (laughs) <laughs> he was playing the part. He was acting like he was going to break <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. So he's really the true hero in this case because without him, who would have reported them missing? I mean, he killed everybody. Yeah, who knows how long they would have been yeah. missing for. So they go in, and this is when they discover all of the List family members deceased. So... They're really looking for John List at this point. Well, he was the only one who wasn't there. So So they find the List family members and they find John's confession letter to his pastor. 
And they start looking for him big time. I mean, they looked high, low, everywhere. They just assumed that at some point they would find him. But they didn't because they were looking for John List. And John List was Robert P. Clark at this point. It was a lawless land. He could be whoever he wanted. Why would he still be John List if he could be Robert Clark? He had such a head start. He had almost a month head start on the cops. Absolutely. But again, he was still John List. So his money woes didn't stop. They followed him, even though he was a completely different person. And he eventually ended up taking a job in Virginia. So they moved from Denver to Virginia. And he and his new wife moved back to the East Coast. Yeah. Like you said, they had money problems in Denver and he couldn't find a job and all this stuff. And they moved to Virginia for the job. And she kept in touch with their next door neighbor from Denver. They were pretty good friends and they kept in touch writing letters back and forth, which is going to come into play in a few years. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Huge. Yeah. Big time. So meanwhile, back in New Jersey, the Westfield police, they're (laughs) they're trying desperately to find John List. You know, they're they're doing everything that they can, but. It wasn't until 1989 when John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted. That's 18 years later. 1989. There was no trace of him for 18 years. And it wasn't until John Walsh decided that America's Most Wanted was going to run this John List case. But again, 1989. That was a long time. It was 18 years. And he had been on on the run doing his own thing, living a completely different life there was no trace of him for 18 years yeah and it just so happened to be that john list's favorite show was america's most wanted so much so that he used to tell his friends and his neighbors to watch it he'd be like you gotta check out the show which bit him in the ass what was he doing waiting for his episode to come on i don't know but it bit him in the ass big time because their old next door neighbor from denver was watching the night that he was on America's Most Wanted. And because they didn't have a current photo of him, they had an artist do a clay sculpture. So they explained the whole case on America's Most Wanted, and then they showed the clay sculpture. And the whole time the neighbor was thinking, gosh, this sounds like Bob, you know? And then when they showed the clay bust, the artist did such a good job that he was even wearing a very similar pair of glasses on the bust that John List wore in real life. Like the artist was amazing. Yeah. How, I mean, I wonder how he just knew that this type of guy was going to wear this type of glasses. And from everything I've heard, the neighbor knew right away. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That looks exactly like, right. And the artist I've heard, he looked at pictures of John List's parents to see like how they aged as they got older so that he could add some of those features to the bust. And then he just guessed. Wow, what a talent. He guessed on the glasses because he thought he would wear thick framed glasses to hide his face because he was in hiding. And that artist was amazing because it looked just yeah, like Yeah, what a him. talent to have. It looked just like him. And a lot of it was his intuition. It wasn't computer programs telling him this and that. It was his gut. Incredible. It Absolutely is incredible. incredible. So when the old neighbor called America's Most Wanted, she was like, excuse me, you're going to want to check out Bob Clark. And here's his address in Virginia. Like, she was just, like, throwing him under the bus right away. She knew it was him. I knew you'd do the same thing for an old neighbor, too, without even question. Of course. She was a a true crime fan before being a true crime fan was even a thing. 
Yep. So when the FBI shows up to their house, though, his second wife, Dolores, could not believe. She was like, no way. My husband is not John List. There's no way. Here's his work address. Go ask him. (laughs) They were like, okay, thanks. On our way. Yeah. And when they got to Bob's work, they were like, hey, are you Robert Clark? He's like, yeah. And they're like, but are you really John List? And he's like, no, 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 no. Not me. No, not me at all. (laughs) But thankfully, they arrested him anyway, and they fingerprinted him, and he was John Emil List. Yeah. Who they were looking for. But he still denied it. Yeah. And they had his fingerprints from when he was in the army. So they knew it was him, but he denied it. Oh, yeah. He was like, no, no, no. I'm Robert Clark. I'm Robert Clark. He denied it all the way until they took him to trial. It wasn't until he was on trial that he admitted he was John List. Oh, look, that's why. He became an actor himself. He was so afraid of Patricia being the first actor in the family. He (laughs) had to take her out and then become Robert Clark. And he played this whole thing off. He was super method in becoming Robert Clark that he didn't think he was John List until he had to break his trance and admit to it. Yep. So at trial, he claimed that his OCPD was the reason for... The murders, and he said that he was unaccountable for the murders. When he went to trial and he gave a statement, he said because of his obsessive compulsive personality disorder, he was unaccountable for what happened. It's like, what? Could you make this any worse? Yeah. You're already the worst human ever. You killed your entire family, your mother, your wife, all three of your kids, and now you're like, oh, I'm unaccountable for this. It's like, first of all. He really believed that he was doing the right thing. I mean, and obviously he wasn't, but he really convinced himself that he was doing the right thing and then really convinced himself that he was Robert P. Clark. It's like, yeah, it's like when he was taking those breaks at the train station, he was really becoming somebody else. He was maybe becoming Robert P. Clark. Yeah, maybe. Well, that didn't convince the jury because he received five life sentences to be served consecutively. Good. So he may have thought he was unaccountable, but. The rest of us think he's pretty accountable. I definitely think he's accountable and deserved what he's got. But John yeah. Walsh said, and I quote, he should have gotten the death penalty. They should have fried him, unquote. Yep. But when the crime happened in 1971, it was before New Jersey had reinstated the death penalty. And and you know me, I'm a proponent for not the death penalty. But in a case like this, even I could see how, yeah, it probably would have been better off, honestly. You know, yeah. he... The fingerprints were there. The evidence was there. He ended up admitting to it. Yeah, if anybody deserves it. Right, exactly. If 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 somebody is going to deserve it, then I could see that this guy would make a very easy case for yeah, it'd why be a good he argument. deserve it. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So he started his sentence in May of 1990, and he died in March of 2008. So he spent 18 years in prison, which was the same amount of time that he was on the run. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, it should have been 36 years in prison, not 18. Right. But, yeah, it is what it is. In August of 1972, so not very long after he had murdered his family in his house, the Breeze Knoll, it burned down in what was described as a mysterious unsolved arson and before it could be sold or inhabited by anybody else. So the murders happened in November. and Right. By August of the next year, the house was burned to the ground. Do you think maybe he had something to do with it? Well, in between that time, teenagers would break in there and, you know, do weird stuff. And people were trying to buy the house, but I'm sure it was evidence still at that point for a while. 
and then it just burned to the ground. So I do, I do think he did it. Yeah. I, I mean, who else would have, and why else would anybody have any reason to, but him? Although that'd be a huge risk for him to leave Denver, go back to Jersey, burn down his mansion, and then go back to Denver without ever having a record of doing that or anybody seeing him or. That's a good point. And you know. with everything he had thought out, this probably wasn't in his, in his list. So yeah, he probably it probably wasn't. It, yeah, it probably was a local person who that house brought bad stuff to the neighborhood. It was bad press. It was bad, everything, bad juju, you know? I mean, and it could have even been just somebody messing around and, you know, was burning something and maybe in the abandoned backyard or something. And, you know, one thing took, took a wrong term and that person was able to get away. There was no cameras in the lawless land of 1972. So they could do what they <laughs> no. wanted. Yep. So in an ironic twist during the cleanup from this fire, it was discovered that the stained glass skylight that was in the ballroom where he had lined his whole entire family up after murdering them, it turned out that that skylight was a Tiffany original and it was worth over $100,000 at the time of the murders, which would have been enough to pay off all of his debt and his mortgage and live for a while if he would have known. Wow. Yeah. You know, again, he was so good with numbers, but he didn't have any of the other senses to maybe look up and go, maybe that could be worth something. So, I mean, yeah, well, there was no Craigslist in 71 either. So. <laughs> it's normally where Tiffany Skylabs are, are on Craigslist. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> what a crazy story, you know, just for someone to be able to do that to their family and just turn off that one part of their brain or their John list and become a completely separate person. I don't, there's not many stories that sound like this to me because it's just, there's so many moving pieces that had to go right. And he planned for them all to go right because he didn't have a job. And so in lieu of working, he worked on a plan to (laughs) kill his whole family. Yeah. So once again, like I said, if some of these criminals would just get jobs, they could have 401ks and mortgages and be normal people. (laughs) But instead they waste their time figuring out how to murder their whole family when you had a skylight that could have solved all your problems right there in your dining room yep. or your ball room, always a solution. Whatever. You just have to look for it. He didn't even look up. Yeah. Yeah. For, for a religious person, he didn't even look to the sky for answers. And you would have thought there's the skylight, man. How divine is that? Yeah. Well, and that was part of his defense at trial too, was that his OCPD, the way his mind works is that once he comes to a conclusion, he can't see any other solution to a pro- like once he's like okay this is what i'm doing then he has to just do that until it's done suppose i mean that's what his defense was that's what he's saying was, yeah was that he could which it's like obviously you can't see any other solution because this was not the right solution but you went with it <laughs> yeah Lunatic. it's true yeah so if you're thinking about murdering your whole family and then going on the run just go on the run yeah leave the people behind don't you don't have to you know take anybody else out with you yeah, like think about what he did after he murdered his family. He went on the run, changed his name, and even the cops couldn't find him for 18 years. He could have just done that without oh, yeah. killing his whole family, and they would have never found him. Like he could have been relieved of his life as John List without killing his whole family. Yeah, nobody would have even really been looking for him because he didn't really commit any crime. He just kind of disappeared. So right. other than his family... Nobody else would have really been looking for him. Right. 
But it was just the fact that he had to play God and be a dick about it. (laughs) So we're going to wrap this up, but we do want to give one important shout out on tonight's episode to Furby. Have a nice birthday, Furby. (laughs) Happy birthday, Furby. We love you. Love you. All right. I'll call you later. Okay. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.